Welcome to the Next Level Brands Podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us here at the Next Level Brands Podcast. Our podcast today is brought to you by Next Level Brands CPG Community, a merger of the experience of Next Level Marketing and the educational resources of Kitchen to Shelf the Next Level Brands community brings together CPG entrepreneurs at all stages of growth, providing knowledge, training, courses, and networking, not only with fellow entrepreneurs, but also key partners in the industry, including packaging, finance, and e-commerce. More details available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's, nextlevelbrands.com, what you need to know to grow. Well, I'm Steve Clear. We've got a great show for you this week. My guest is Allison Kane. Allison is the founder and CEO of Haven's Kitchen creative cooking company with a mission to change the way people feel about cooking. Allison has been helping people cook, not just follow recipes, since 2012 when she opened up the Haven's Kitchen Cooking School in New York City. In 2018, Haven's Kitchen launched its first product, a line of fresh, globally inspired sauces in a pouch, now available online as well as at over 2,000 stores across the U.S. She is also the author of the Haven's Kitchen Cooking School Cookbook and has contributed to publications such as the New York Post and Forbes. Allison works to support other early stage food entrepreneurs as an advisor. And of course, she is a fellow podcaster hosting the great In the Sauce, a show about building consumer brands. Welcome to the show, Allison. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. So um, Haven's Kitchen, nice that you chose that instead of the other name you could have, but I suppose somebody else had it at that time. What, um, Allie's Kitchen or yeah. Hell's Kitchen? <laughs> yeah. They were both taken. <laughs> Obviously. But, but you... Um, you really come, I mean, there's, there's people who come into food and beverage in very different ways, but you came in as a foodie. So certified, yeah. that's what we, you know, we're all about. So we're not on a mission to change the world. We're on a mission to make it a better place, maybe make it taste a little better. But tell us a little bit about what you did before Haven's Kitchen. Yeah, I mean, I raised five children. I was um, a stay-at-home mom. I had five kids under 12 when I went back to get a master's degree in a, a, a very interesting sort of cross-disciplinary program called Food Studies. And I knew that I loved cooking and food. Um, I was always a foodie. I was always in search of like that perfect bite, you know, like what made a good bite Mm -hmm. Um, and I knew I didn't want to be a professional cook. I also didn't want to be a nutritionist. And so there was this program at NYU that had a little bit of food policy, food systems, culinary history, anthropology. Um, it was just everything I wanted to do. So I went back to get my master's when my youngest went to nursery school. And then, um, I ended up coming out of that program with a very clear conviction that home cooking wasn't just joyful, but a lever for a consumer to make an impact on, you know, our own personal health, our community health, farm labor practices, the environment. Um, so a lot about home cooking and yeah, kind of saving the world. Right. Um, and then I opened a cooking school to teach people how to do it. Now th that seems to me, I mean, um, I cook, that's fine. And I will be happy to show people some little things here and there. But yeah. the idea of opening a cooking school is just frightening. Um, did you, did, were you looking at it as a business or were you just doing it so much anyway that you said, you know, hey, I, I might as well put the shingle out? 
what happened, I started teaching um, cooking in college, you know, people who needed to figure out how to make dinner for the first time in their lives for themselves. And then, you know, for young couples or when you had kids or, you know, I was always teaching cooking. It always came really easily to me. It was always like my happy place. Why I called it Haven's Kitchen because kitchen was for me very much a haven. But then when I went to get the master's, I had to have an internship, which sounds like a a movie because I had five kids under 12 at the time. Um, And my internship was um, as head of the education station at the Union Square Green Market. And my job was to do all the school tours and teach everyone about agriculture and farm labor practices and farm subsidies and the farm bill and everything from three-year-olds your pizza actually comes from the farm to right. 18 year olds. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, 18 year olds basically saying like, why do you think your Doritos are so inexpensive? Um, and I ended up sort of my, my cooking students, I was bringing to the farmer's market and the grownups on the school tours of the farmer's market were emailing me for recipes. And it just seemed like I wanted to have a place where I could bring these two things together. Um, And this was 2010, 2011. So people were starting to read books like The Omnivore's Dilemma and starting to understand that maybe there was something to kind of like local organic sustainability, but it was still a little bit pie in the sky and it didn't, it wasn't making its way into people's kitchens yet. Um, So I wanted to do that. Yeah, there was a, uh, there was a, a, a rise in awareness um, a certain level of sensibility, but it hadn't quite gotten, you know, right. uh, there at that point in time. But that sort of helped to spawn um, not only the more hardcore changes, but then also the kind of better for you, which was moms like yourself who weren't going to go vegan organic this weekend, but who said, I want to give my children something better than what I'm, eating, you know, just, just a slightly better choice. And, you know, not there's no have tos or shoulds. You know, I think having five kids prepared me for opening my business in the sense that if you hit people over the head with you should buy organic and you should buy local and you should cook, da 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 da, da right? That's very different than pouring them a glass of wine, setting a beautiful table and getting people excited about roasting a chicken and having a salad, you know, right? it's, it's just a, it's a way of pulling people in as opposed to knocking them over the head with more things that they should be scared about. You know, we're scared of enough. And you, you mentioned one of the, what I think is one of the hardest things to actually do well, and that's roasted chicken. (laughs) Uh, people say what do you mean i said no no really try roasting a chicken and getting it exactly right it it, (laughs) it work it takes you know and uh yeah you can all build up your little mounds of things for your dessert or you know or deconstruct a a, a blt right but real cooking is being able to roast the roast the chicken so you so you have the cooking school all that's going well did you start the book first before you came out with the products yeah. So everything kind of, so, you know, to, to go back to your question of, did I think I was starting a business? I, I really didn't. I really thought I, I don't know what I thought I was starting. You know, I, 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 I knew that it needed to support itself, you know, I knew that it needed to make enough money. It wasn't, you know, paying for my kid's education. Um, but I knew that it, it, I needed to build it and I needed it to be sustainable. Um, 
And year two, we were profitable because we ended up doing a lot of weddings and private events and all of these big corporate events that incorporated food. Um, people started doing brand activations, which was like a whole new thing and, you know, press dinners and, and corporate retreats where they had three meals a day and then a cocktail party at the end, all this stuff started happening, which was really cool. Um, I was fortunate that, um, we were on West 17th street and there were three publishers that came every day for their coffee. Ah. And they all kept saying, you should write a cookbook. You should write a cookbook. One of them ended up actually like giving me a, a, an advance to write a cookbook, which was pretty cool. <laughs> I kind of threw everything I knew into a book, wrote the book that I wish existed because um, it, you know, I, I kind of wanted to write a book that made cookbooks unnecessary in a way, you know, like not about following recipes. It's about learning some really fundamental skills. Um, And then that, so I started writing the book in 2015. It was published in 2017. In 2016, I looked around and thought, you know, all of our students are saying something very similar. They kind of know at this point how to grill they know how to roast. They know they know some basic stuff. Cooking started becoming a real part of the zeitgeist at that point. <laughs> but what they were looking for to garnish and to add flavor, you know, the chimichurri and the harissa yeah. and the romesco, that hadn't been really updated in their market in a long time. And they weren't finding the global flavors that we were teaching them at the school. And why was it all in a bottle in the middle of the store with an 18 year shelf life? Like what, what, what was going on there? Um, And that's when I sort of thought, you know, if my mission here is to really help people cook with confidence and joy, I should give them an actual product that helps them do that. Um, And that's how the sauces were born. Now you obviously were, were teaching how to make these sauces from scratch, whatever in the, in the school. when you kind of had that epiphany that you want to do that, did you then begin to research the packaged goods industry or how did you go from that? Yeah. I got a concept to, oh, this is how the stuff actually gets in the supermarket. Yes. Um, so by that time, I had graduated from my master's program and I was a professor in the master's program for the undergrads. And I had free access to Mintel which is um, one of the coolest things that's ever happened in my life. I probably, I mean, I think this might have been illegal. I'm sorry, Mintel, but I think I probably downloaded a hundred thousand dollars worth yeah. of research. Like you can always, can always edit that, but yeah. So explain to folks, by the way, <laughs> the audience, what Mintel, the Mintel data. So honestly, Mintel, from my understanding is like really good market research, um, other than that, all I knew was I started looking at sauces and condiments, marinades and dressings, home cooking. You know, it was a lot about the size of the addressable market, the way that they, you know, segmented the market, the opportunities in the market. Um, you know, I I didn't know what what an addressable market was in right. twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen. Seems to me like there were enough people out there who wanted sauce. And if they didn't want sauce, they wanted salad dressings and they wanted marinades. Um, you know, I got an inkling that home cooking was on the rise because I had my school and it was sold out every night, but it validated that thesis. 
it validated the idea that people were moving from the middle of the store to the perimeter and, and wanted more fresh. It validated my thesis that, you know, people were kind of tired of, of sort of same old flavors and they were looking for global inspiration, but they weren't quite ready to cook with lemongrass yet. Right. They knew that they wanted to touch those flavors, but they, they didn't have the confidence to use them. Um, and so it, you know, it was, it was just a, you know, I think a validation of what I had learned doing what was ostensibly market research for the past six years that I didn't know was market research. Um, and, and so I, you know, I decided that we were going to put these things in pouches because all of our students were like, why do you, why is it in a jar? You don't use sauce like that. You, you right. know, you drizzle it. So what, why would it, and also my mother was a painter and um, I had these very fun squeezy pouches of oil paints that, sure, you know, just makes you feel creative yep. Yep. Um, and sparks a little joy. Um, and I decided that I really didn't want to spend any money that wasn't necessary if this was just an idea that was somehow a good idea, but that grocery stores weren't ready for. So we packed up some sauces, put them in pouches, smacked on a label, went to the fancy food show in 2017. Fortunately for us, Fresh Direct and Whole Foods were there and ah. were excited. And, and that was that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. See, wow. It's in, it's in a pouch. It's convenient. You can do a single serve or a double serve, whatever it's, it's Fresh Direct uses, right? Double serve, I think, and then do two or four. And then, yeah. And then there you go. Right. Yeah. You're on. on yeah. The so, you know, it was, I mean, really, I got to give a shout out to John Lawson, who's our Northeast regional buyer at Whole Foods, who, you know, basically was like, you need to put this in a corrugated box. And I was like, what is that? He's like, you need to find a distributor. And I was like, what's that? What is that? I had no idea. I didn't know how to, I didn't know in how your to car that hooks up to the spark plugs. I, I literally was like, can I just put it in a cooler and like toodle it around to the 14 locations? And he said, no, <laughs> you cannot do that. So it took us about, you know, from June of 17, our first purchase order was March of 18. It took us that time to really sort of professionalize it, figure out the margins, figure out, you know, how to source the ingredients. There are certain things that you, you know, like, like lemongrass, for instance, you, you can't use fresh lemongrass in a commercially available product. There are things like that that I needed to learn. Um, and then, you know, we, we got our first purchase order uh, and then, I think it was 48 hours. We got a second one for four times the amount. I cried. Awesome. Like, cried oh, on the yeah. floor. Oh, yeah. Um, what do I had do now? no idea how we were going to fulfill that. was like, what the heck did I get myself into? This was did, dumb. Did you have a co-packer identified at this point? Or were you guys no. still putting it in? We were in, an, we were in the hot bread kitchen incubator. Yeah. Um, okay. we, we were, you know, running buckets of sauce around and, and cooling it down super fast. Cause we cold fill. Right. Um, we learned about HPP, which was great. We then found a co-packer, then another co-packer. And then we ended up partnering with our current co-packer who's been a wonderful partner. Um, 
And, and that's why it's a viable business because it's a, it's a very expensive supply chain and, and HPP is expensive to begin with, but patch filling is also expensive. Right. And, yep. you know, we weren't willing to sacrifice any quality. So we needed a partner on the production side who was going to be able to, to make the, you know, production costs viable. Yeah. And, it, and that's actually a really good, uh, I've talked to a couple of people who had them on the show where um, they had a good enough relationship with the co-packer and there was enough going on that the co-packer became an investor or partner or whatever and, and did something and, yeah. um, and, and it's made for very successful, which counterbalances all the horror stories that you hear about with co-packers and going right. forward. But as I I've think, heard, if you, yeah, I think if you have a fundamentally expensive product and you think that scale is somehow going to make that better, you're on the wrong tree. Right. Like you, the, the, the growing of a very expensive product, like scale doesn't solve that. Right. What, what will, you know, certainly not, I mean, until you get to a ridiculous scale, right. So you're just going to be burning money and raising money continually and diluting yourself continually. So if you have a product that has a complicated supply chain that uses a lot of ingredients or expensive ingredients or, you know, and you're, you're, you know, you're trying to get to like a 60 plus product margin. If you don't have some kind of integration with your production, you're just going to run into problems. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there, you're still, you're still, it's still a service provider to some extent. No, no partner is perfect, but for me, you know, no one can, no one can make my product for the price that I'm making it for without some sort of relationship like what I have. Yeah. There's a, a, a wonderful lady in San Francisco who makes the thing I call the $20 truffle, which is <laughs> it's the most incredible truffle you've ever had in your entire life. It's pretty good size, but in order to sell it, she would have to charge $20 per truffle. Right. That's how it works. And you look at, I, I forget where her single origin chocolate, cacao, whatever comes from. And it's mm -hmm. like, but there's no way to reduce that. Price. And even right. by a half a boatload, they're still right. charged because that's what they charge. That's where exactly. they are. Yeah. Um, and, and so um, talk a little bit about how you chose, what the flavors are and, uh, and, and, and yeah. how you chose them. Yeah. I mean, I think that we, you know, when I look back, I, I think I'm, I tried to solve three big, three big kind of consumer issues in one. And I, and I think that was a, that was a little ambitious in the sense that, that meant that I was educating people in three different ways. One, moving people out of shelf stable into fresh to buy a sauce mm -hmm. uh, is a move. It's a move that people aren't yep. used to. They're not accustomed to doing that. Yep. Two, moving people out of a jar or a bottle into a pouch, a little confusing to the American consumer, right? Not to the European or Asian consumer, certainly to the American consumer. Yep. And three, introducing a flavor like romesco and chimichurri and not having you know, a ranch and, a, you know, a curry for lack of a better word. Right. Um, we do now have a barbecue, which is yeah. partly in response to that. Right. So I don't necessarily think I chose that well <laughs> in terms of the flavors. I chose the things that my students loved the most. I chose the things that got uh, the most sort of accolades from the cookbook. And I chose recipes that while a home cook can make them, we were solving the problem, whether it was the mincing 
and the, you know, and the dicing um, or the roasting of the peppers or using a lemongrass, right? We were solving a problem where we were getting them that last mile of flavor, you know, faster and easier than what they would have to do to make it themselves. Right. Um, And that was really the goal. I think that as we've evolved over the last three years, we've realized that, you know, it's going to take some time for consumers to know exactly what to do with chimichurri. So this time when we were doing innovation, we were like, let's do a sauce that everyone knows what the heck it is. They know what to do with it. They know where to put it. And that's when we came out with our barbecue, which has been really fun because the, the barbecue that we made is super fresh and super clean label. So it's a little different of a value prop, but it's, 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 you know, it's been a learning curve (laughs) for for, for folks who are, you know, have a, a six month old bottle of sweet baby rays in the back of the refrigerator. You should try this other stuff because it's a different. I mean, we have no added sugar. We sweeten it with dates and plums. It's fresh tamarind. We, you know, we have apple cider vinegar in there. And because it's HPP, we're not boiling it beyond recognition. So you're getting all of those micronutrients. It's, it's, it's really delicious. And it's havenskitchen.com. They can find directly. Yep. They can then- find it online there. Yep. And, and Whole Foods and uh, where else just off? The yeah, I mean, we're in Whole Foods Global and we're in um, King Supers and Ralph's and Fred Meyer. We're in 600 Targets, um, Fresh Market, Wegmans, Harmons, you know, those all those West Coast right. really great stores. And not, um, in, and not in the bottled sauce aisle. We are in the fresh area, which is a little confusing because in some cases that's dairy, in some cases that's produce, that's right. you know, depends who's, yeah, depends on the store, yeah. Yeah, which that. is another fun, you know, learning yes. curve. Yeah. yeah. It <laughs> yeah. was, um, in, in when bottled dressings came out and stuff, um, one of our clients was Ventura foods, uh, you know, and, and it was very big because there wasn't a lot of space allocated and the produce right. people were very, you know, the produce buyer was not. It was not nope. the biggest thing for them. It doesn't yep. turn fast enough. It takes up space. Um, right. They're used to buying commodities. Yeah. Yeah. The labels are getting wet. They look crappy. You know, yeah, it was, it was a big, a big challenge for, for that. And, and battling with Lighthouse, of course, at the time was, was the big competitor. So it's, uh, yeah. But it's interesting that um, by virtue of how you change the categories and the buyers, you as the vendor also have a lot different, in many cases, margin requirements. Yeah. Uh, velocities, promotional opportunities. You know, yeah. um, it's like if you're a frozen entree or whatever, you sit behind the four pizza companies forever to try yep. to get a digital coupon or something else to run because we're running pizzas. That's what yep. the frozen you know, buyer does, right? Yeah. I think of it like, you know, I mean, again, I, I have a lot of children and I just very early on, I just recognized like your assets are your liabilities and your liabilities are your assets, right? And what makes our our job challenging is also what gives us an incredible advantage um, and lots of opportunities. And, you know, what what has to happen though is whoever we partner with, whether it's our fractional sales folks or, you know, marketing or the buyers themselves who are, you know, in a lot of cases, fantastic partners, we're not just a new product. We really are creating a new category. And 
I look at it like Sabra in 2009, right? No one knew what the hell hummus was. No one knew how to merchandise it. Is it a spread? Is it a dip? It's brown. Where does it go? Is it a yogurt? And, you know, now you look at it, the hummus set, and it's a 10-foot set in every store across America. That's us. So that's what we're going to hopefully it won't be 10 years, but it's um, we need partners who understand what we're trying to do. And the consumer is ready for it. Right. The consumer's ready for it. It's getting the sort of behemoth grocery stores to understand and and to figure out how to partner best with us. Um, Let me ask you about pandemic. What what kind of happened to the business, how how did it affect you guys? I mean, obviously you couldn't run the, the yeah. yeah right the the school, yeah. <laughs> but you know other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, uh, how was you know, how was the pandemic for you? So um, April fourth was the Whole Foods reset uh, global, where we went on to four hundred and ninety some shelves across the country. Oh my god, um, we had. Demos planned in around 30 cities across the country. We were ready to just show the world our sauce. And um, so that happened. Um, we ended up, and the reset happened. UNFI pulled it out, yeah. got us out there. It was kind of amazing that it did. Um, we, you know, our big question was, how are we letting people in Nashville and Savannah and Sacramento? They've never heard of our cooking school. They don't know what the heck this is. Like, yeah. how are we? So we had a lot to do on that front. Um, fortunately, at the same time, people were home and they were looking for things to make their cooking more delicious and easier. They were looking for flavor builders and flavor enhancers, and they were looking for, you know, things to spice up their chicken from last night so that their chicken tonight was a little different. Um, we leaned pretty heavily into Instacart, which I think was, was a good move on our part. It really, you know, our, our Wegmans sales and velocities, you know, kind of, I think it was like four to five X, you know, it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, we also knew that we were getting those three Kroger doors and we were also getting target we weren't sure that those resets were going to happen on time, but they did. Um, and they, they came out of the gate really strong too. So the sales and the, I think the, um, the growth of the sauce, you know, was tremendous. I mean, it was over 500% year over year, the school, um, you know, sadly I had to close. Um, I saw the writing on the wall. I, you know, fortunately for me, I did have this other business that was growing. So I could kind of, you know, pivot. Um, I would never have closed it, but it was in a way, and I hate to say it, but sort of serendipitous for the CPG business in the sense that A, it got all of my brain space Right. We, you know, our messaging, our marketing, our website, you know, who are we? What are we? Who do we serve? Why do we serve them? Yeah. All of those things became very, very, very clear. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think it contributed to to the growth and and probably to to what will be another great year, you know, hopefully this year. Yeah. It's it's been um as we watch the trends in in we talked about this earlier about what what do we call this period? Do we call it mid-pandemic? Do we call it kind of post-pandemic? It's not post-pandemic mm-hmm. yet for sure, 
Um, but many of the habits um, that were formed during the last year and a half um, are look to be continuing. Is that you know, yeah. in-home cooking is continuing to you know pretty stay pretty up there. Yep. Um, you know, takeout is going to be that's going to be a fundamental part of any restaurant now. Just absolutely. You know, yeah. You're going to have Michelin star restaurants. They're going to be doing takeout because they're going to have to. Totally. Um, um, and it's, yeah. So it's, it's going to be uh it'll be a challenge for you now, but I think one of the things is um, I was reading something this morning about the, the consumer trends um, that while they may not go out as much as they did pre pandemic and they are cooking home more, preparing meals home more, they want convenience. Yeah. So guess what? I've got a Romesco sauce, which, by the way, is a pain to actually make. Okay. Totally. So, right, like I'm, just, I was so happy when I saw yours. I went, oh boy, this is great. <laughs> I don't have to do that anymore. Um, yeah. and, and and you know how some people get with chimichurri too, which they think garlic is the main right component. And you're like, oh, oh, right. Uh, you know, a lot of opportunity there. So, what's sort of next on the horizon with our, more sauces, more flavors, or yeah. Um, I mean, kind of, you know, a bunch of a bunch of stuff. Um, I think, you know, number one is, again, you know, continue to build awareness and grow those velocities in the stores that we're in. Yeah. You know, we sell a lot of chimichurri right now. I don't even think we've scratched the surface. Right. Um, you know, it's been three years in Whole Foods Northeast. Our velocities are 35 percent higher than they were a year ago this time. So I think that. Um, we just, we keep building. We don't start to get ahead of ourselves. We don't start to try to sell buyers other products and other categories. Our wholesale plan is lean into these sauces. We are, um, you know, obviously looking to, ex you know, expand the door count with the right partners, right. really um, maybe build out, you know, bigger pack sizes, other opportunities for the sauces we're already making. It's a hard supply chain, as I said. So I don't think we're ever going to have more than like eight fresh sauces available. Right. Um, it's also just, you know, as we were talking about with new products like this, the only, the only store that's giving us six to eight slots is Whole Foods. No one else is giving us that shelf space. So it's silly for us to have 12 flavors when we're only going to be on shelf with like, you know, hopefully three yeah. to five. Yeah. So, give, me your, give me your top four. Okay. Great. Exactly. So yeah. discipline, 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 you know, rationalizing ourselves before anyone does it for us and just really making the best possible opportunities for ourselves in the fresh. We are launching a shelf stable product um, in the like, Q4 holiday time, it won't be for retailers. It will be D2C only for a while. Okay. Um, in conjunction with, we are building out a massive website with about 175 cooking and recipe tutorials. Wow. Um, I am a big believer that, you know, the days of uh, buying a ton of Instagram ads and getting your sales, you know, sky high yeah. is a little bit over. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can always buy sales. That's always been something you can do no matter what, what you're buying, but it's not the way that I want to run the business. So I'm building out a real content platform where people can really feel supported and they're cooking and get more confidence and get the skills they need and also sell some product to them. Um, great. Yeah. Yeah. 
I will be I'll be looking forward to that. Yeah. So it's all going to kind of ladder up together. We have um, we just did a brand refresh because, you know, as I said, we went straight from the cooking school into the pouches and we never really did a brand book. We didn't have colors. We didn't have fonts. Wow. We just, Wait, how can you do that? Wait. No, we just, you know, we, we were very product first, which right. I'm proud of, but um, we kind of needed to catch up with ourselves a little bit, especially since, you know, we're national now and we wanted to look a little more grown up. So we, yep. um, our new pouches will be rolling out onto shelves at the beginning of October. They're beautiful. Our new shelf talkers are beautiful. Um, so a lot of, uh, it's a very, I think, you know, Last year, we were sort of in a, in a nest and I think someone, you know, we got shot out a little of the nest and, and we flew and we were okay. And this year, I think we're like building a new nest, you know, and all the things that go into like building the foundation of a great business, building a great team, really understanding again, who we are, what we stand for, who's our consumer, all those really foundational questions. Um, Absolutely. You know, way to build a brand. Hopefully. Yep. So, yeah. Allison, let's deviate for a quick minute. Uh, I want to ask you about um, In the Sauce. Yeah. Because great show. And, but I don't know. And I think when you and I have talked before, I, how did you get into podcasting? <laughs> it's funny. I, like, I don't even think I'm in pod. I, honestly, I when I was... When I was getting my master's, I hosted a show on a radio network called Heritage Radio Network about urban agriculture. Um, it was just me and my friends, and I was asking them about their like, you know, urban farms or their aquaculture projects or what. It was just, and I realized how much I loved what I called radio. Right. I, it was. Right. It, I don't even know that it was podcasting a few years ago, but I loved radio. You know, I feel really confident in that media form. Yeah. I don't love the camera thing. Um, and I love asking questions and I love learning uh, clearly. Right. And so um, when I first, you know, when we first launched, I guess, you know, after I got up off the floor with our second purchase order and someone said, well, there's something called supply and demand and they're never going to be equal to each other. And you have to mitigate when this side is too much and you have to like figure out a plan when that side's too much and welcome to the world of, you know, business. Um, I realized there's a lot that I need to learn. And I mean, literally what is operations? What does a distributor do? Really basic questions. Forget about what's an OI, you know, back up, you know, what's a build so, I, I, I wanted to ask all these questions and I knew that there were resources that I had because I had been in this business, you know, at the cooking school for all these years. And I had friends in CPG because a lot of them had done events at Havens and, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty popular place for a lot of sort of food people. And I thought, you know, I have all these questions. I'd love other people who maybe don't have the access that I have to all these smart people and these experienced people to also get the answers because it's not like you can Google this stuff. You know, what makes a good co-packer? What legal things do you have to have in place before you make a website? All of these things, right, that are very fundamental that, it, you know, when you listen to how I built this, that's right. not what I'm talking about, right? I wanted like, how the hell am I going to build this? <laughs> 
So I went back to my radio network and I was like, this is kind of random, but can I start this thing? And I think it'll be kind of fun and interesting. And I think more and more people are trying to build food businesses. And, right. and you know, that was July of 2018. And so it's been three years and I've had incredible guests on. And, you know, I mean, if you call, you know, someone who's been in CPG for 25 years and you're like, hi, I'm a random person with a small company. Can you help me? Versus hi, I host a podcast with 100,000 downloads. Do you want to come on as my guest? Right. You might get a different response. Yeah. And and when when I started, uh, I even had a, a, a worse experience, which was all of my CPG friends, of course, I, you know, sent a, a lovely email to and said, I'm so excited. I'm going to be doing this. It's going to be a right. lot of fun. And nobody, nobody. Right. Crickets. And it was like, okay. And then finally, it was like a couple of guys that, you know, along the way, it helped maybe get them a job or something. Right. <laughs> or, remember, you know, remember that budget uh, thing we had to take care of and cover right. up? Okay. <laughs> I need you on the show. And that's the first few guests, which, uh, you know, remain, will remain in a Right, right, right. Uh, but that was how I got the first few on. And, and then, um, you know, I, I changed the tactic a little bit and went to my LinkedIn folks mm-hmm. and, and just very simple just like three sentences. Hey, you know, I had a podcast going, going to have, you know, founders on. Uh, I think foodies are really cool people, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden got responses back going, sure. I like when, when, you know, and it was like, okay. But there's such, it's such a fun group. I mean, it, it, yeah. that's the other thing is there are some, some great personalities. And even in big CPG, I've had some people on that are still awesome personalities. I mean, just, totally. you know, stories. And, you know, it's one of the few industries where, you know, there isn't a track, you know, sure. There are the people that work at Frito-Lay or there are the people that, you know, start it, whatever. But for the most part, everyone's got this really interesting, like curvy, weird road of how they land right. at the marketing job or the sales job or, yep. you know, and, and I don't, I just, it's one of the few industries where there just seems to be true um, collaboration and, you know, excitement for other people and their brands and their companies. It's not, you know, sure. I think if I was in like refrigerated beverage, I might like need to get sharper elbows, but you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like a, it's just a joyful. And we're all, you know, someone, I talked to an early stage founder the other day and she described it as like screaming into the void she was like, no buyer ever responds to me. My UNFI broker doesn't respond to me. Like you're, you know, you're hoping some investor thinks you're worthwhile, but there's always, she's like, so I find myself just screaming into the void. And, and sometimes I like pick up a signal and it comes back to me. And I was like, yeah. And that's, what's fun because we're all, we all relate to that. Right. You know, we're all in this together. And even the ones that look like they're killing it and crushing it and all that nonsense, like they're experiencing the same stuff we are. So, and, and, and for folks out there, you know, fellow entrepreneurs and stuff, like the buyer doesn't return your phone call. Um, for several years, my agency was the shopper marketing agency for McCormick Spices. McCormick at then Safeway, now Safeway Albertsons, but at Safeway was called the category captain. Right. The category captain, because you don't have a whole, you know, you have a kind of a lineup of spices on the shelf and you know, it's a lot of skews and not a lot of turns or whatever. Now, I think at that time, and this is probably close to 20 years ago, they paid $350,000 a year for the privilege of being the category captain. Right. 
Yes, right. Right, which means they brought all their stuff in, obviously, and lined it up. But then they also got to choose some of the other stuff as to the little brands and the odd stuff right. that was there and whatever, because the buyer didn't really want to deal with all those. Deal with it, right. All right. So we launched a gourmet line. Gourmet was it was upscale. It, it looked better. The bottles were awesome. They were green instead of the red. And us and 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 the and the, the West Coast region manager is on the phone to the Safeway buyer, going, "Hey, we want to come over. We got to do a cutting. We got some stuff prepared. We're going to cook up some stuff for you." The buyer says to him, "I don't have time. Just send the samples over and have your folks fill out the form and take care of it. We'll cut it in." And he's, he's like, he's a salesman. He wants to do this. He's the category captain. Yeah. He's for this privilege. And the buyer's like, no, I don't have time. That's it. Yeah. So folks, if the buyer ignores you, they ignore McCormick too. So don't. Yeah. No, that's very comforting. It's good to know. It's, I think that the big frustration is like, you read these lofty, beautifully written sort of strategic manifestos by the leaders of these, you know, big companies. Sure what they're looking for, what they want to grow, their investment in communities and, and you know, women and minority-owned brands. And, and then the merchandiser is not incentivized or doesn't seem to have gotten that memo. And so and it brings up a good point, too, because this is why people disrupted that system. This is why people started selling directly to consumers and yep. cutting the whole process out. I think what they're realizing now is that there's a reason why that system worked for as long as it did and continues to work to some extent. And all those digitally native guys are trying to figure out their retail strategies. And you might not be paying $350,000 to Safeway, but you are paying $350,000 to Facebook, right? Oh, right, right. So, you're, yeah. you're paying someone right. to acquire something. Right? Yeah. And the other thing I think that this, the pandemic will force, um, especially because of what happened with Amazon, is these companies also, you mentioned Mintel. So there's also IRI, Nielsen, Spins, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Spend millions of dollars and then go through that with firms like I had to present a picture of how the consumer is shopping. Because we know we sell in every store in the United States, right? And, and, and this is what's going on, whatever. And to have the buyer go, yeah, but that's not the way we're set up. Right. And you can totally. still go to any conventional grocery store and the milk is still in one of the two back corners of the store because I want you to walk the furthest you have to walk to buy the product you buy most often. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think some of that is going to change because yeah. of the influence of Amazon and direct-to-consumer overall. Well, for sure. And we're seeing it in real time. I mean, we're seeing, you know, uh, we've been in sort of catch-all sets since the get-go, you know, we're next to yeah. sauerkraut and tofu, perfect, bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. perfect yeah. bar and hail Mary, like yeah. we're a sauce, it, you know, but you know, you can literally see grocery stores being like, huh, hmm, this is refrigerated. Uh, let's put it in the, you know, plant-based catch-all category. And, and as you know, things wax and wane and, and you can see those same stores now debundling those catch-all categories and trying to figure out where everything goes. In the meantime, all of them know that their commodity dry goods stuff, people are ordering in bulk online. They're not coming to the store for those. Yep. So how do you, you know, how do you make sure that you're you're keeping the store interesting enough for the millennial consumer who wants to go shopping and discover new products 
but they really want to buy fresh, but also make sure that you're taking care of, you know, right. your customers who, who need the other stuff like toilet paper. Right. Um, and it's, you know, I'm happy to be a part of that figuring out um, because I, I, I think it's fun. You know, I, oh, yeah. I, don't, yeah. I don't know. It's why we're here. You know? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I will say that, you know, the, the, the ones who are figuring out how to keep, you know, in-store functional and fun and innovative and discoverable because the consumer shops a completely different way in store than they do online. Right. right? And so, and then, and then figure out how to get that online consumer and not have them be on Amazon all day and not have them be, you know, buying one thing from this guy and one thing from that guy, but keeping them in their, you know, right. in their basket. In a bigger basket. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be, Yeah. It's going to be a, a fun time, or as we would say, an interesting, um, you know, future coming up. And that's why, you know, you gotta, you gotta play the long game when you're creating something new and have patience and have a war chest and not spend on stupid stuff. Yeah, right. No, you got to go forward. Well, listen, Allison, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's been a great, great talk and you, and, and you have a wonderful story to go with it. And of course, as a fellow podcaster, right, it's, it's <laughs> great to have you on. Um, you. you know, that the sort of the last part of the program is the, the, the sign off thing. Um, we look for you to share some advice, one word, one topic, um, an area of the business that you think is really important or that you had to struggle to overcome or whatever. We call it words to grow by. Um, what do you have for your fellow entrepreneurs? So I thought about this. Um, I think I would like to talk about diversity. Um, and I don't mean it in sort of like the flippant sort of, let's talk about diversity. I, I mean it as, you know, one of the fundamental things that I learned in studying agriculture and farm policy is that a single crop is a very unsustainable way to, to grow right? That the more species that you have in a garden, the more protected you are against pests, weather, right. pesticides, right? Yep. And so the, my job, I think, and my responsibility as a business founder is to build a truly diverse infrastructure and team and not with a nod to making sure that I check boxes, Right. But really making sure that I build out a team that is inclusive and rich from all sorts of backgrounds and races and experiences. And I think as founders, we are in this incredible, unique opportunity to not hire people that look and sound exactly like us and have exactly the same education or experience or family structure that we did and really look outside of the networks that we've built and try to find people who can make a truly diverse team because they think our teams will be better. I think we'll create real opportunities and I think we'll ultimately build better businesses. Absolutely. That is great. Absolutely great. And we will pass that on to the audience and, and fellow entrepreneurs as well. Cause yeah, I think it's, it's, it's huge and a big portion of it. So, Hey, thanks so much. Really appreciate being here. Remember it's havenskitchen.com folks. Yes a number of great stores, which you mentioned, Whole Foods and Wegmans and everywhere else. Support it, get sauced. That's important. Yes. 
And, Get sauce. <laughs> and, and listen to In the Sauce, right? Yes. Very In nice. the Sauce, wherever you get your podcasts. That's yeah. how we say it, right? We're, we're out there. Thank you Thanks. so much for having me. It was really and, fun. And, and thanks to the rest of you for joining us today on the Next Level Brands podcast, part of the Next Level Brands CPG community. If you have a growing firm in food, beverage, health, and wellness, or even small goods, you should be part of the Next Level Brands community. Education, resources, workshops, founder coaching, and networking. More information available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's, nextlevelbrands.com, what you need to know to grow. This is Steve Clear. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.